Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. In this episode, we talk with Steve Dempsey, the author of Fearful Symmetries, which is a Trail of Cthulhu expansion about the cosmology of William Blake in the backdrop of the United Kingdom in the 1930s. It includes a lot of information on the cosmology of Blake, which you can just dump into a mage game, as well as magical societies that were active early in the previous century. I think a lot of this is stealable from Mage, and there are copious show notes. Steve was very generous with the amount of time he gave us, and this is a heavily cut-down conversation. And I think it was 2 a.m. his time when we spoke with him. So once again, thank you, Steve, so much. After about an hour, Bryce and I then talk about how to apply these ideas more directly to a game of Mage. If this format works for you, great, as it lets us talk to an expert without having to interrupt them constantly about how to add whatever they're talking about to Mage. If it doesn't, give us a holler. There is a poll in the Spotify entry for this show, or drop us a line on the Discord. And with that, on with the show. Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. Joining me today is my co-host, Bryce. Say hi, Bryce. Hi, Bryce. As well as Steve Dempsey. Steve Dempsey is an author for Pelgrane Press, as well as, I presume, other games and game publications. And today we are going to talk about Fearful Symmetries, a book that takes place in the 1930s UK and focuses on the myths myth and mythology and works of William Blake and how they possibly interface with the mythos. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you doing? Hello, I'm doing very well, thanks today. And it's just great to be here. How did you get into RPG writing? It's quite a long road for me. So I wrote my first games before I was 10. The first game I wrote was a sort of table tennis variant played with a football. Our, the road outside our house was split into big slabs, and so it looked like a tennis court, so I met this game. My brother and I got books. We got books from the local library about soldiers from the Second World War. Somebody had given us a load of tiny little inch-tall soldiers. They were six inches to a foot, kind of. And so we got all the weapons information, and we wrote some war game rules. We had a problem because we were using the rangers from the books, and the rangers were enormous, and we didn't think because the soldiers were that large that we could use a different range, a different size for the rangers than we did for the soldiers. So the only place we could play it was in the back garden. Um, <laughs> and we wrote a battleship variant, which we called Pirates, where you both of you drew a, ma- a treasure map, a hidden treasure map, which had tigers and pits and quicksand and guns and lianas. And you made this map up with this on and you traipsed around each other's map. You called out locations of where you were and where you were going to next, and you found things there and used them to buy other things, and you got the treasure. But then, you know, in the late 70s, I discovered AD&D. I was living in France then, which was a bit difficult, but there was a French magazine called Jeux Stratégie, which issue number four had a big thing about role-playing in it. But that got me into AD&D. I wrote a massive campaign, essentially a sandbox campaign, which I ran in France when I was there, and when I came back to the UK to go to university. I ran it in the UK as well, and it lasted about four years at university. And I still wasn't writing for anybody else except for myself. But one of my friends started writing for the British Isles Traveller Support Group. And I wrote one single creature for a book. That was my first publication. And then Pelgrane Press, who published Gumshoe, their first game was Dying Earth. And they put out a call for authors to write a Dying Earth game. And so I thought I'd give it a go. I wrote a game. I ran it at Gen Con in 1999. They gave the contract to some guy called Robin Laws, who I'd never heard of, but 
Turns out he's actually pretty good at writing games. But the other thing I discovered was I only live four miles from Simon Rogers, who owns Pelgrim Press. <laughs> we started gaming together. We playtested Dying Earth. I wrote a load of freebies for their website, a load of small adventures. I've been sort of writing for Pelgrim ever since. A lot of gumshoe stuff. And occasionally, my wife writes gaming material as well. In fact, she's the one with the any. You know, I've never won uh, an any on my own. I've won bits of any's because I've contributed to books by Robin Laws and Ken Height, who regularly win such things. We've written for Magpie Games, who wrote something for Urban Shadows, the London supplement. And I wrote for Cthulhu Britannica London box set for Cubicle 7. It's got quite a lot of my material in, including a write-up of John D, some fiction. And that's, you know, that's essentially my way into gaming through friends and just writing lots of stuff. You've worked on something involving John D. You are automatically a member of the Maids of the Ascension extended community. Uh, thank him for his work inventing Enochian, which is wonderful to have something that you can just run with without it somehow being secretly anti-Semitic, which is seemingly what happens with every other magical conspiracy. I also like your comment on it's big in France, but no one else has ever heard of it, because every time I hear about the French role-playing world, that seems to be the repeated phrase. Yeah. I'm actually involved in a group who are putting together a podcast about French role-playing for English people. Nice. What's it like having art credits shared with William Blake? <laughs> yes, that's amazing. My mum is actually a professional artist, and I'm sure she's very proud of me. The Fearful Cemeteries book has got loads of actual Blake artwork in it and looks amazing. I drew one diagram and some maps. My art isn't quite up to William's, but uh, I'm, I'm very glad to be in there. And I do appreciate that all of his work is in the public domain and that I get to just freely replicate Swole Newton at the bottom of the ocean as many times as I want. Yes. My art direction for the game was put a load of Blake work in it. And then Ken Height got all the Blake work and chose where they would go and put them in the right places. So thank you, Ken. Let's move on to talking about the book Fearful Symmetries. Fearful Symmetries kind of has three pillars to it. Uh, it has the cosmology of William Blake some ties to the Lovecraft mythos and UK in the 1930s. And before we continue, like every other Pilgrim book, it's very well written. It shows a clear vision of the game. It has an eye towards the variance on that theme, and it is simply dense. So I guess for the first question for the audience at home, who was William Blake? So William Blake was born in London in 1757, and he died in London in 1827. And he lived there all his life, except for a short, unhappy stay in Sussex for about three or four years in the early 1800s. He was accused of sedition and assault by a soldier who might have seen him and his wife sunbathing nude in the garden. But he was found not guilty and decided to return to London. His background was he was a fairly well-off working class. Um, his dad was a hosier, so he made socks and um, stockings and things like that, and lived in Soho, which is right in the middle of London. But William demonstrated a natural talent for art, for drawing, when he was a, a young boy. And his parents were able to afford to send him to art classes. And later on, when he was a teenager, he became apprentice to an engraver, which sounds like it's on par with uh, other artists but in the period engraving was seen as a craft rather than an art so it was more suitable for the working class and not like painting or drawing which was a more suitable occupation for a middle and upper class. Blake's apprenticeship went quite well he found jobs with other people and then he set out on his own he initially worked with a friend but then he worked 
more on his own because he wanted to produce his own material. And he found a way of having art and text on the same engraved page. So if you look at his poems and his longer works, in his poems in particular, quite often there is poetry and art mixed together on the same page. And he developed this process called relief etching, which it had been used before, but nobody used it to the same extent he did, because most people would have art printed separately from the text, which would be done using the movable type method. Whereas relief etching, you write the text backwards <laughs> and then you etch out around it and then you print it. So he was never very successful, but he had a number of middle class patrons, which enabled him to produce the books in which he revealed his own thought. And he also taught his wife to read. She was working class and couldn't even read when they married. He taught her to paint as well so that she could help with his books. And each one was individually printed and coloured so that no two Blake original books looked the same. Yeah, so that's his sort of professional life. What we're really after is the sort of mystical life of William Blake. So he was a Christian mystic and a visionary. So he literally saw things, weird things going on in the world around him. When he was a child, he was on Peckham Rye, which is about half a mile from where I'm sitting now, a park. And he saw a tree inhabited by a host of angels, like they were all sort of candles in the tree. And there's a big mural on the side of a pub now, which celebrates this. When talking to his friend Varney, Varney said, why don't you draw some of these things that you see? And he drew an image called the ghost of a flea, which is a rather terrifying creature, which looks a bit like a deep one. It's holding a little bowl where it collects its blood that it drinks from. When his brother died, Blake said that he saw his brother's spirit leave his body and clap in happiness that he was freed from the shackles of this world. He saw the face of God outside his window when he was a child. He saw Milton. And in fact, he talked to Milton, the, the English poet. And he talked to various prophets as well. And at one point, his wife said, I have very little of Mr. Blake's company. He was always in paradise. He was very involved in this imaginary world. And in fact, the imagination was a very key part of his philosophy. He lived at a, quite a strange time in history. His life coincides with the Industrial Revolution. So a big time of change in the UK with coal and iron and steam. The Newtonian view of the world coming to prominence. Machinery and laws were all about how the world worked it wasn't about spirits and imagination blake didn't like that but also there were the great revolutions during his lifetime first in america and then in france which threw off the shackles of the old regime and notably for blake the old church as well he didn't like the idea that the way you worship should be imposed on you by the church and he wanted that freedom to have his own relationship with god but there were other things going on as well for the entire period of his life, except for perhaps a short period in 1816, the Kingdom of Great Britain, which it wasn't in 1801, and then the United Kingdom, Britain and Ireland was at war. So the whole time Britain was fighting somebody else, the Dutch or the French or, or the Americans or the Spanish. There was a lot of worry about spies in England, uh, which is why Blake uh, prosecuted for sedition earlier, uh, later in his life, because you just couldn't say bad things about the king. But other things that happened, he was probably the first romantic poet. Later on, we had the late poets, Wordsworth, Tennyson and Coleridge, and a bit later than that, Byron, Shelley and Keats. But they all came after Blake. He rejected the Industrial Revolution and the primacy of science, and he placed the emphasis instead on individual human experience and celebrating the past and nature. So beyond the rules and the laws, there's some sublime aspect to the universe, which is at once awful, 
it's too you can't contemplate it as a human it's just beyond your comprehension but also blake saw it as uplifting which is kind of the opposite to lovecraft really i suppose but also at the same time gothic literature started within blake's lifetime so the castle of otranto 1764 by walpole and frankenstein was written in 1818 and poe was born in 1809 all these happened during blake's lifetime one of the key aspects of gothic literature is anxiety there's always some kind of anxiety at what other people are up to or what's happening in the world or just the weather is always threatening you and anxiety is always present in Blake's work as well because your imagination your individuality is always under threat and then there's some really weird things like Eurizen which is one of the uh, Zoas in the book of Eurizen his first mention he starts as he creates himself out of the universe the universe doesn't exist but he creates himself and he starts as a skull and then he slowly grows a skeletal body underneath the skull which emerges into the world and then this skeletal body is enveloped by blood and flesh which come from the tears of loss which is his emanation a creature that's grown out of his imagination if you want gothic horror you don't have to look far beyond uh, well it's right there in blake achieve any sort of fame in his own time or is this kind of something that only after an intervening century or two that blake's works and views kind of became popular or well known he had patrons in his time, but he wasn't well known, no. And people who did encounter him just thought he was mad because his views were so contrary to, to the rest of how people thought the world worked. In the 19th century, he was started to be picked up by some poets. So the poet Swinburne championed Blake and brought him to the attention of more people. His papers were owned by the family of one of his patrons, and they became more accessible later on. No, he wasn't really well known in his time at all. Earlier, a moment ago, you mentioned Urizen as a Zoa. Who are the Zoas? Before we go into Zoas, I'll talk a bit about Albion. Sure. So Albion means white in Latin. It perhaps inspired by the White Cliffs of Dover. It was a, an early name for England. Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote an almost wholly unreliable 12th century history of the kings of England talks about Albion, inhabited by none but a few giants, and then Brutus of Troy turns up and conquers it and calls it Britannia after himself. And the last giant is called Gogmagog, and he throws him off a cliff. Gogmagog dies. Gogmagog comes back a bit, though, because there are now two giants called Gog and Magog, which are called the protectors of London. They're giants, they protect London, and they're carried each year at the Lord Mayor's show, which sounds like a modern thing, but actually this dates back to the 12th century. So people have been doing this for almost a thousand years. And then a guy called Hollinshead wrote a Chronicles in 1577, which is a bit like Geoffrey Monmouth stuff. And he mixed up his giants and called the giant Albion. And then Spencer in The Fairy Queen, which is a long poem essentially about Queen Elizabeth I as Queen of the Fairies, also has Albion the giant. So Blake picks up on this and Albion essentially represents England. He's a giant, he represents England. Some people say he represents all of humanity if you're being generous, but on the whole, Blake, when he's talking about things, is mostly talking about England. He talks about France and the USA a bit as well. And there's a coloured engraving of Albion, which you might have seen. It's on page 17 in Fearful Symmetries. And it's got Albion dancing, having thrown off his shackles. There's also an uncoloured version of the same engraving, where a moth is between his feet and flying free from its chrysalis, which represents rebirth. And below is written... 
Albion rose from where he laboured at the mill with slaves, giving himself for the nations. He danced the dance of death. And so this is England rising above the Industrial Revolution, being reborn and sacrificing himself for the world. And his arms are spread as in crucifixion. And you can see the light of dawn come out behind him. So it's a whole rebirth of a new world where Albion has found himself and has sacrificed himself for the world. Hurrah. Very much the kind of thing England's been doing for, well, no time ever. (laughs) So you mentioned Albion as kind of this, is it safe to say embodiment or or is this intended strictly as a metaphor? It's difficult to say with Blake. One of the things Blake wanted to do, I think, part of his project is to create a mythology for England because it didn't really possess one. And so, so when he talks about Albion, he does mean it literally but also it is also metaphorical as well. It's just his writing is so dense and he believed in so many different things that it's difficult to to separate the two really with him. And I don't know if you can answer this, but whenever I hear about a person coming up with a national embodiment about all that is good and right as a country, I immediately wonder, has it been co-opted by fascists? Is Um, there a secret faction that is like William Blake, but also is kind of white supremacist that we need to worry about when we're investigating this? The only thing I know that is a bit like that is that there is a William Blake Society and the guy who is in charge of it in the UK is an American. I can't remember his name, but he is a Trump supporter, which is just bizarre. And in fact, it's the one reason I've had nothing to do with the Blake Society <laughs> because of him. So it's very strange given Blake's views on the imagination and freedom. I, I don't understand it at all. And also sexual freedom. He was very big into sexual freedom for women. Okay. So w- there has not yet been the movement that has successfully co-opted this in some way where it's like, ah, we can't read that anymore. Um, <laughs> no, that's good. I don't, I don't think so. In one view of Albion, in one of his books, in the epic poem Jerusalem, Albion essentially is asleep. And while Albion is sleeping, the four parts of Albion, the Zoas, run around and do stuff. <laughs> And the main four parts of Albion are Tharmas, which is its instinct and strength, but without compassion. So it's God. It represents the whole body. He's a bit like a shepherd who looks after his flock. And then there's Urizen, who is the head. He represents reason and tradition, but no imagination. So he's the one who sets the laws about how things should work. And he's pretty savage, generally, because that's how it's always done. And then you've got Luva, who's heart and passion and Jesus, and has all the emotions joined together under love. The final one is Uthona, who's inspiration and imagination. Uthona is also sometimes called Los, who's a blacksmith who um, uses his hammer to create things and to change things as well. So these are the main four emanations that come out of Albion in the epic poem, Jerusalem, it's the story of Albion has fallen. These things are now separated. It's the attempt by loss mainly to try and put the whole thing back together again. So imagination being the inspiration to save the world, put Albion back together so that it works again. But then you get other emanations that come out of Albion. Further down, you get loss and Orc. So Orc is uh, loss's son who is born, depending on which book you read, in the Book of Arizona, it's slightly different. <laughs> Book of Jerusalem. He's the son of Los and Enitharnon, and he is one of the bad guys, I suppose. Although everybody has bad five minutes in this, at least. I mean, Los tries to 
build things properly, but it doesn't always go right. So far, these are all male emanations uh, from Albion, and you get the female emanations, which separate from the Zoa. And the explanation is that Adam was Eve was separated from Adam, and these are the same. So you get all the different aspects of, of women. So there's Enion, who separated from Tharma, so she's the Earth Mother who controls the fertility or not of the earth. And, you know, Shabni Garath, maybe we're thinking there. There's Celestial Ahanya, who represents pleasure. There are two kinds of pleasure. There's pleasure when you glory in it and enjoy it. And there's debased pleasure, which is jealous or secretive. And sin is some kind of sinful pleasure. There's Valor, who's an emanation from Luva, who is nature. And she tends animals, but also can show the carnivorous, vicious side of nature as well. Nature can kill you as well as nurture you. And finally, there's Enitharmon, who is out of loss and is the musical side of loss and represents the homemaker or the nurse. If she's misguided, she can become reactionary and do the opposite to those things. So it's all quite complicated. And Blake doesn't stop there either. <laughs> he goes, there are, there are several more of these things that he creates, um, which are either emanations from loss or couplings of other of the emanations you can keep going down further and further and adding these in and in fact i use most of them in in the game because they've all got some aspect that might be interesting for a player in the same way in fifth or symmetry in gumshoe generally your character has a drive the way these are used in the game means that there's some aspect of, of these emanations of these zones that you want to incorporate into your character yeah, you have the the twelve sons of Albion. You have the the twelve daughters as well that are referred to with various degrees of consistency throughout the text. In, in trying to do some homework on this, I was looking up information on on Urizen, who uh, Ancient of Days is an absolutely baller piece of art. And yeah. anytime you get to slap that on the table, I consider that to improve things. And it was a Reddit thread where someone got a Ancient of Days tattoo. And the first post was a well actually of someone going, you know, in the epic poem, Jerusalem, Urizen is the bad guy. And I'm like, that's amazing. The first reply to someone getting a William Blake tattoo is the well actually of you got the bad guy. Um, and it quickly descended into an argument about Nazis. So I'm like, okay, it's good to know that some things never change. Having worked on this, is it one of those things where like the names of the Zoas and what they're associated with are now in your bones? Or do you still have to periodically be like, oh, what was Anatharmon in charge of? What was what was her nature? Yeah, no, I have to go back and look. The the ones that I know more about, the ones that the players in my group are using, you know, I'm more frequently reminded about those. But I, I have some NPCs that are associated with them as well, so they come in. It's a lot to keep track of if you want all of them. And you make mention of your players. Page three are acknowledgments, which includes playtesters. And the groups are Thelemic Order of Silver Twilight, Esoteric Order of Albion, Order of the Crimson Dragon, Council of the Lion Rampant, Cupertori's Mysterii, the Aegis of Oxford, and then group four and five. And my heart goes out to group four and five. <laughs> So, but uh, regardless, it's always good to see a role-playing game text that has a playtest section because I've certainly played a lot that clearly did not. But uh, two of them are currently still playing. Neat. A good sign. Yeah. You make mention to potential ties with the Lovecraft mythos. What are some angles we can take in connecting the Lovecraft mythos or more accurately the Blake cosmology, kind of with the Lovecraft mythos. I went through William Blake and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and I looked for themes. I didn't necessarily just read all of Blake's work because some of it's quite deep and impenetrable. Because we wouldn't have the book yet if we had, if you had to. <laughs> 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 you wouldn't. 
I mean, it took me eight years anyway. Using a lot of material that other people produced about Blake as well, I looked at some of the key themes for it, particularly the ones that I thought would link well to Lovecraft. The first one is the fall of man. Albion falling asleep and these things breaking up is essentially similar to the fall of man. So Albion does not live within harmony with himself. You're on a voyage, or Albion and his parts are on a voyage of rediscovery of self and trying to build themselves back together again. And essentially, Lovecraft, there's a fall as well that man is not aware of. You're always contained the, some mythos root in the background means that you are squamous or just horrible or related to deep ones, um, something that you don't want to accept and that you deny, but ultimately the truth will out. I mean, it's happier for Blake because this voyage of rediscovery leads to you getting back whole and becoming whole again. And I suppose in The Call of Cthulhu, the hero does become whole again when he accepts the unholy truth of his birth and returns to the sea. That might be viewed as happy by some people. With the mythos, it seems to be things start out bad and are then concealed and are then revealed. Whereas with Blake, no, there is this, we would kind of recognize that initial state of being greater idyllic. Now, with, with the Blake angle, is that the angle for humanity or is that just an individual person? Like, is this a, a personal quest for unity or is this something that we as a society should be striving for? Yes, but for Blake, it's very much for a society. When when he talks about Albion, Albion represents England. It's the whole of England that needs to do this, become more aware. But if you read the book of Eurizen about where the world comes from, it's essentially Eurizen, who's a vindictive and horrible god, who gets bored and makes the world and then summons people into it. And we're getting somewhere into Ligotti territory here because it's suggesting that it was always bad, and the best you could hope for is to go back to nothingness. Real demiurge energy there. Yeah. Some people have suggested that Blake is a Gnostic, so has a demiurge as the creator. It's less clear whether that's actually the case. I think he's he does believe in the power of Jesus to save mankind, I think, because Jesus turns up and does those kinds of things. So it would be untrue to pin that on Blake, but it's certainly a reading you can make of it. And it's kind of interesting because at the time, like just the notion of Gnosticism hadn't really reemerged yet. Yeah. We have this multi-century gap between like the Albigensians being crushed and kind of its reemergence in the early 1900s. Now, thought strains and so on were, were obviously around and out, but a lot of the, the Justinian and Valentinian uh, texts were just kind of lost for for some period of time. I also have a subtle theory that when people mean Gnostic, they really are just talking about Philip K. Dick, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. So are there any other themes that you felt connected the works of Blake and maybe the works of Lovecraft? Well, another one is science is despair is a strong one. The very beginning of The Call of Cthulhu, Lovecraft says the sciences have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piercing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and our frightful positions therein. We shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. And Blake thinks science is evil as well, not because it is looking for new things, but because it's restricting what you can think about, because it's placing everything within order and it's denying imagination. So kind of the opposite reason for Lovecraft again. Lovecraft thinks it's going to reveal terrible things or things man should not know. Blake thinks it's not going to give us the freedom to explore where we should or what we can and make the most of ourselves from being free. 
that science gives us this false sense of explaining the totality of experience when really what it is just doing is highly categorizing and defining a, a narrow uh, band of the human experience. There's a, a kind of the C.P. Snow view of things that um, science needs to be expanded to meet with arts and culture at some point, or it is a societal functionable kind of fail. Your opening Lovecraft quote reminded me of the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents and kind of the, the degree to which science allows us to expand that. Now, was Blake a primitivist in any way? Did he throw off the shackles of progress? Was he personally opposed to it? Was this a, a Walden thing? Or was it kind of just a view of the scientific mind frame and not necessarily just progress itself? I don't think he was opposed to progress as such, but he was opposed to law telling people what to do. So he liked spirituality, but he had big problems with the church and the way religion was organized and the way you were told to to go to church. And he had a big problem with the way law was about marriage. He thought that if you loved somebody, there should be no legal opposition to you having sex. He never discussed homosexuality, as far as I know. And he upset his wife several times by suggesting that when she wasn't interested in sex, he could have sex with somebody else. There's no record that he ever did. But also we know that a number of his pieces of art were destroyed after he died. Um, because they were possibly too sexually uh, suggestive for the period. And some of his pieces of art had fig leaves put on them by uh, people who were worried about upsetting the servants. It's not very clear whether he's against progress as such, but he's the Industrial Revolution is chewing up England. I mean, the Romantic poets are very much against, you know, heaps of coal and blackened earth and Blake talks about the dark satanic mills which could be factories could also be churches they both fall under that sort of rubric for him but he was very keen on America though and he saw America as being progressive taking things in new directions and making man more free yeah during his lifetime that that makes sense <laughs> that was the uh, the American revolution and that sparked the better part of 50 60 years of revolutions in Europe yeah Blake was friends with Thomas Paine although they didn't see each other very often. Having gone through this sheer volume of work, do you have a favorite Blake piece at this point, either artistically or literarily? I'm a big fan of uh, The Night of Emmy Tharmond's Joy, which is a very spooky painting. It's just amazingly gothic. There's a bat in the night, there's an owl, there's a snake, there's a donkey eating a thistle. There's Hecate, who's the triple goddess, who has a book open in front of her. I'm imagining it's a book of magic. It's reminiscent of Fuseli as well, who I don't know if you've seen his painting of the the sort of frog-like demon sitting on a woman's chest representing nightmare. Is there an ancient association in the Gothic with the donkey? Is there just an angle of horror I have been missing, like the, don the, the harsh donkeys of the night? I don't know what the donkey comes from. Uh, it could be a scene from Macbeth. Um, and it's just there, the three witches there and they got their donkey sitting there next to them. I mean, the owl usually represents wisdom. Snakes represent, you know, poison and witchcraft and evil. And Hecate it's, represents people just out having a good time. So I always like that as a kind Well, of Hecate is the queen of magic. In fact, she's very important to witches nowadays. There's a big resurgence in Wicca in investigating Hecate and her rights. Hecate, she's so hot right now. She is. Um, and as the goddess of the moon, she became very important in my campaign. So while we're while we're on the subject, what is the nature of magic in this game, and how does it differ from standard 
Trail or Call of Cthulhu magic that uh, listeners may be familiar with? So in standard Trail of Cthulhu, the magic is very much the same magic that you saw in Call of Cthulhu. It's spells that people have learned mostly from mythos entities, a lot of them about summoning, controlling mythos entities, or doing really horrible things, such as shattering somebody and eating their face. Yeah, standard magic, um, magical effects, yeah. Whereas the magic in this game is much more inspired by classical magic from you know antiquity, Middle Ages, and from the magical groups that existed following the occult revival of the 1880s uh, in England and Europe and, uh, and America, essentially, as well. And so come up with four different kinds of magic for the game. There is alchemy, which is control over elements. It can be done with test tubes in a laboratory. But also, I take a wider view of um, how you might access the elements. Um, and as you become more proficient, you don't need to do it in a laboratory anymore. There is uh, magic with a K, which is inspired by Thelema, the magic of Alistair Crowley and John Dee. And it involves quite a mystical voyage of self-discovery, looking at the ethers, which were mystical realms that John Dee uh, decided existed in his talking with angels in Enochian. A-E-T-H-Y-R-S, I think, or yeah, yeah. mage fans may know that from, that is part of the full title of Dewizatep, Realm and Master of the Aether. So if you're looking for that, realize it's spelled differently. And there is a fantastic write-up in the book that goes through the, what is it, 26 or 32 of them and, and what they may contain and what they look like and possibly why you are there and why you are passing through them. So And you can go to Crowley and read this stuff online as well. I've summarized some of Crowley's experiences in these, uh, but in Liber 412, is it? I can't remember. Uh, he writes about what happened when he visited them. I mean, some kind of astral projection into them. I also have spiritualism. So spiritualism was very popular in England and America. It started in America with the Fox Sisters in the Burndover district in New York, table mm -hmm. tapping and communicating with spirits. And then it came to England. Arthur Conan Doyle was a big fan, particularly after the First World War. So many young people died that uh, spiritualism got a big boost from that and it's still going strong in the 1930s although it's lost a lot of its trappings of classism that happened in the UK where the mediums were all young pretty working class girls and the people going to the seances were all rich upper class people it's shed a lot of that by this period in fact there's a still a spiritualist church not very far from where Dee saw his uh, vision on Peckham Rye um, so also half an hour half a mile from where I live um, and people still <laughs> practice this and the last one is witchcraft which is essentially the magic of nature and you might meet a group of witches quite early on in the game who worship at the Rollright stones which is a, an old uh, ring of stones in Oxfordshire and they are big into crows so these are different from Lovecraft's witch cult well they could be a witch cult in the signing the black book way you get in Lovecraft and dreams of the witch house they could be that kind of thing if you want them to be so every every npc in the book has been written up in three different ways whether they're a positive for the group or negative or twisted is the last one which is they have something weird and lovecrafting going on so you could run them as friendly or you could run them as having signed the black book and being nihilatotech worshippers if you want and it seems like there's an interpretation of mythos magic that is actually just kind of a hyperscience, hypergeometry thing that your mind is opened up to. And this is kind of a latent aspect of the universe that it is very, it could be viewed as highly scientific. These styles of magic are kind of independent of that. 
and they each seem to have a dominion and, and kind of a thing that they excel at for these. Do you feel that it is best if a group kind of picks one and everyone is a practitioner of that, or is this a mix and match thing in actual play? In actual play, almost every group has gone with magic, and as all the practitioners do the same kind of magic. They encounter NPCs who do the other kinds of magic. They have relationships with them. I think the first spiritualist my own group met was the aunt of one of the play characters. She decided her aunt was a spiritualist because they needed to know whether somebody was alive or dead. There is some kind of, I suppose, niche protection to a certain extent between the groups of magic. There are some things, if you want to talk to dead people, you're not going to get a, a magician to do it. You're going to get a spiritualist. If you want to control nature, you're going to talk to a witch. If you want to project forces it's and travel to weird regions of space and time it's magic if you want to make physical things then it's an alchemist generally the effects can be similar but the source of them or the reason how they work is slightly different but also the other thing which is stated up front in the book is the reason why this magic is here is because in 1925 the call of cthulhu went out and reawakened everybody who had any magical ability and reawakened the power of magic in the land in particular in england when you say that are you saying that all of them draw from cthulhu or that the waking of cthulhu just kind of reactivated other extant magical things i i guess my question is is alchemy a thing unto itself or is alchemy just a weird distortion of the magic of the old ones uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, you can you can run it both ways. I think in my game it might be a weird. I think everything is essentially ultimately Lovecraftian. It is quite distantly Lovecraftian, and the players might never encounter that. I'm surprised my players haven't realised that yet. <laughs> and one of the things that the text does, though, is it doesn't tell you. It does something that I like when game books do and say we do not have a canonical answer, but here are three choices that you can make if you want this to be an independent thing. If you want Albion to just be a veneer on top of Yogg-Sothos, that's entirely fine. If you would like him to be another kind of great old one or something like that opposed to it, if you want that to be the embodiment of, of human prowess or something like that, that's okay too. The important part is you say, here are options rather than just leaving it vague and never telling us. So I think I take my cue from Blake there, which is free the imagination. Mm -hmm. And you can free the imagination by saying, do what you want, which is great. But then there are so many choices you don't know. So give some examples, help people build things. It doesn't seem to be much point in writing a book and then saying, do what you want. You bought the book because you want to know what to do. So give you some options. I mean, you might do something completely differently which is great there is no canon do what you want with it and another thing about the magic in this book is when i think of call of cthulhu or trail of cthulhu magic frequently every effect i do that isn't utterly trivial costs my character in some way is magic different here is it intended to be a little bit more freewheeling is it something i can do without ultimately shattering my my sanity after three sessions it is. So when you're setting up uh, the game at the start, there's a discussion to be had with the players about what kind of magical group they're going to have. Essentially, they're in a magical group at the start of the game. And one of the discussions there is how, how much magic you want in it and how dangerous is magic as well. So Trail of Cthulhu has two sanity monitors. It has stability, which is your kind of willpower and how you're getting on on a day-to-day -day basis. And sanity, which can go up and go down, but in my games, it only ever goes down. Essentially represents how capable you are of being in a world full of humans as opposed to not understanding why they're not completely afraid of Cthulhu all the time. Or, you know, you're off in the dreamlands and you're no longer part of humanity, really. 
and stability is what powers magic for the most point and also there's a new stat in here called magic which also powers magic which means you don't have to rely on stability as much and in fact there's a whole load of information about how to create spells how to bring in the magical thinking of the time so there's a lot of things about the laws of magic and there are so many different ways in which magic can work there's the law of contagion if if a person touches this thing you can affect the person because they've touched that thing so by contagion you can jump onto them because those things are related but there's the law of opposites it's made of fire and you've got a water thing so it'll affect it because it's the opposite there's the law of attraction it's the same as the other thing so you've got you're in a car and they're in a car so you can make their car uh, stop by casting a spell and there's any number of these things and then there's the sort of correspondences between day of the week you know, uh, are we a Sunday? It's good for doing sun rituals and, and it's good for doing things that affect light and it's good for doing things that are about God as well, if you're interested in that kind of thing. So let's do that on a Sunday. Thursday is Thor's day. If you're doing any lightning magic, maybe that's a good day to do it. But there are also correspondences between flowers and all sorts of things. And essentially the book just gives you a whole load of these reasons, a whole load of ways in which you might interpret this and how you might build magical effects by bringing in these correspondences. And mechanically, they just make it easier for you to cast the spell. So it's in your interest as a player to to read some of this stuff and try and bring it into your magic rather than just say, I'm casting, you know, summon your Sothoth. You mentioned these correspondences and you specifically say, hey, for effects of this size, you need so and many of these to make it to make it feasibly doable. You even have an extra page where you talk about geometria and uh, sigil magic and electric magic, which I think needs to make a comeback <laughs> in terms of wild claims made about how the natural world works in my my after talk with Bryce, we're going to go into some of those in a few more details and talk about how we can steal those for uh, for, for Mage the Ascension. You also present yes. the idea of how to create a magic group in terms of creating your little band of characters and so on. What does that kind of look like? Like, what do you consider to be those basic choices? So at the start of the campaign, there are two kinds of things we go through there's the ground rules which are metagaming stuff you know which most games will go through now you'll have a session zero where you'll talk about how this game is going to be run pretty much everybody is doing that now for safe and happy gaming but then for magical groups there are different things you go through so there's the style of magic which is one of the four alchemy spiritualism magic and witchcraft i say you can do multiple style styles the default style is magic and most people seem to go with that then i go with some rules which set up how the group is going to operate in the world and also how other groups are going to operate the first one of these is called the winchester covenant and so this is essentially setting who is it acceptable to do magic on and the idea is that all magical groups will have signed up to this to some extent and it can go through you shouldn't use magic to hurt anyone is sort of the top the, the most stringent and the least stringent is you shouldn't destroy the world with magic. Pretty um, restrictive to me, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, particularly in the light of what Lovecraftian cults get up to. Then there's the Chatham House rule, which is a rule uh, from politics. In politics, it means if you have a meeting subject to the Chatham House rule, you can talk about what happened, but you can't attribute anything at the meeting to anyone in the meeting. So oh. you can know what was discussed and what the outcome of that was, but you can't attribute any quotes to any one person. Here it's taken a bit more widely and the default setting is that do not investigate outsiders from magic in magic because it'll break them. In my experience, most groups go with that as well, although they go with it at the start, but then it becomes more fluid later on. <laughs> uh, 
as uh, they get involved in dodgy business. The laws of magic kind of turn out to be the rough guideline of magic. Yeah, understood. Yeah, well, most of them have actually killed a lot of people. That also seems to tie with a lot of RPG experience I have. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's not surprising, sadly. Most of the people they've killed were evil worshippers of some Lovecraftian deity, but not all of them. Not everybody who was an evil worshipper of Lovecraftian deity knew that they were. Then you have group details, so a name. You know, think of a, a lovely name for your group, and you mentioned uh, a number of them. All my playtest groups had lovely names. But then choose a goal for your group. Or in Trail of Cthulhu, at least, each character has a, has a drive. And this is the reason why your character carries on exploring and investigating these fearful mysteries where normal people would either say, right, I've had enough or phone the police. No, you want knowledge or power or my favourite one is it's in the blood where your character has some kind of Lovecraftian thing going on in their family and the player doesn't necessarily know what it is. They just say, I want to choose that as my drive. That's why I'm exploring things. We'll find out and play what it means. And for a long campaign, that's great. It took 190 sessions to resolve it in my current group. How do you even start to keep that many sessions straight anyway? There you go. <laughs> really good notes. I have Notepad++. Plus plus. Uh, you can have text files. And I start a new text file for each session. And I keep I have them all open at once and I can search all of them. And because my game is to a large extent improvised, I don't decide what's going to happen in a session before the session to any great extent. So I need to know what has happened. I put notes for future sessions about what I think might be happening next. But... This is an amazing resource for finding out what's going to happen or what has happened. Having 270 text files opened at the same time from a person who talks about the terror of opening yourself up to the cosmos really seems to fit. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you have a fair point. Yeah. Each time you open all of those, point of stability just gone. <laughs> well, I never shut them. They're always open. Mind you, I have 40 windows on my browser at the moment as well. So, you know, I'm bad for three and I feel like that's too many. Exactly. I have two <laughs> things open right now and I'm barely holding it together. The goal of your group can be knowledge power or a magnum opus, which is, you know, make a, a grand ma magical marvel of some kind. Then they have to choose a, a holy day, which is the day that is holy to a group. You, you might get some more magic points on that day from a generous GM and there'll be a celebration of some kind. And then you have the inner sanctum of your, your group. The default one is the Radcliffe camera, which a number of groups have chosen. So the Radcliffe camera, camera just means a circular room. It's a it's a theatre in Oxford in the middle of the university. It's a, an amazing building standing on its own next to the Bodleian Library, which is also an amazing library for magicians. So also next to that, there's a science museum, which has got one of John Dee's tables of correspondences in it so it seems like a good place to be for a magician and also there's a pub opposite that it says good pies it's everything you need it's one-stop shopping and there's a membership policy as well how do people join your group is nobody ever allowed to join your group does there does somebody need to die for somebody to join and the reason i put this in is because it's not unusual for characters to die in lovecraftian games and so how welcoming are you going to be to a new person can you cultivate new people before uh, before somebody leaves the group do you let npcs join as well that kind of thing in addition to these group mechanics, which are perfectly reasonable ways to kind of set up a group, you also introduce two other pretty interesting technologies to create background of the game, the folklore engine and the history machine. Do you have a favorite one of these and just kind of what is it? Well, the folklore engine, because my style of gaming is essentially improvisational, and I think Gumshoe is quite well suited to this, although it wasn't necessarily set up in that way, but Robin Laws wrote the Armitage Files, and I wrote a piece in that about improvised gaming. So essentially, Core Clues, which is the motor that drives Gumshoe, 
you just need to give players players core clues so that they have between two and five things to investigate any one time. And then when they go and investigate a clue, you can decide how it fits into the bigger picture. And I have some other rules like reincorporation. It's a bit like a joke. A joke sets up the punchline by talking about something earlier on and then coming back to it in a way you didn't quite expect at the end. Writing Trailer Cthulhu improvised scenarios is the same. Talk about something going on and then come back to it in a way that people that the players didn't quite expect. Or listen to what the players are saying and come back to it in the way they said it's happened. Generally, I mix those two things up. So sometimes I've decided which way it's going a long time beforehand. Sometimes they're investigating something and I put some clues in there like they found these little claws in somebody's in a they raided a shop which belonged to a deep one who was living in the middle of England a long way from the sea for reasons and they found some things in the basement of a shop these small claws because I wanted something interesting I didn't know where it was going and then you know 20 sessions later they found out what these claws were and what they could do with them uh, initially they thought they were shark's teeth because there are beaches in England where you find uh, prehistoric shark's teeth not very far from where I lived on the east coast so the folklore engine is a way for me to create folklore on the fly in a game that's how it came up essentially my wife is a proper folklorist and we were both members of the folklore society she essentially knows pretty much every single ghost in England somehow we were on the train coming back from Liverpool the other day not just ghost but folklore I mean she wrote the book of the smoke and the book of the new Jerusalem which were associated with this she knew most of that stuff beforehand <laughs> which is just scary so I read about folkloristics which is the sort of science of folklore I looked at the way folklore is structured because there was a lot of structuralists who talked about folklore and fairy stories and yeah Joseph Campbell yeah so Joseph Campbell, who I don't like at all because he imposes far too much structure on things. So I wanted a more loosey-goosey way of building a folklore event. And so it has a location. It happened somewhere. There were some people there. There were some strange things there because it's folklore and folklore is all about weirdness. An event happened. And because of this event, there was an outcome that happened to the people who were there. And now there's a, a trace of this in the folklore. So people in the oral history, people talk about it or there's a mention of it in a book or something. And this is essentially what folklore is. It's the stories we tell about ourselves. And this is just a quick way of, it's just a list for each of these things. There's, you know, between 10 or 12, what supernatural actors were involved in this event? Dragons, fairies, hybrids, uh, you know, strange combinations of things that should not be, such as plasma and gas and animal. You know, religious saints and devils are very popular in England. It could be wild animals or the wild hunt, which chases people around on horseback until they die or are assumed into wild hunt and have to sit on a horse for eternity. And so I've used this in my game. And in fact, I've gone even further. I've written a perchance generator that now... I can just click a button, there's a website, <laughs> and it just generates folklore stuff for me. Kind of where the other thing I created in comes in the history machine. Essentially, the history machine is Ken Height. <laughs> <laughs> I did think about it calling the Height machine, but um, essentially with Ken Height, I don't know if everybody follows his podcast with Robin Laws, but you should. And they do a thing called nerd troping, where they take a nerd thing and a real world thing and a historical thing, and they put them together. And then Ken talks about it for half an hour and about how you can build a game on this, how you can build four games on this. And it's just amazing. My history and my nerd stuff is quite good, but I, you know, I can't do that. And so the history machine is essentially use the real world and combine things in ways that people didn't expect or twist them. And so it talks about 
how to do that. I talk about the way I wrote the game, in fact, was that my players were investigating a ley line in Cambridge, which is where Sir Isaac Newton worked for most of his life. And I checked up on him in Wikipedia and found that his half-niece got inherited his papers and she left them to a daughter who married Viscount Portmore. And in the 1930s, he was an American born in Chicago, served with the British Army, and then started a far-right group in England called England Proud. I've changed the names but these are real people. And their philosophy was mainly expounded by a guy called Albert Martini. And I read some of his stuff, which is like, well, it's kind of like Trump, but written in the 1930s. More intellectual than Trump, but the same kind of messages. That is a low hurdle to clear. (laughs) And so he sounded like a good bad guy. So they weren't investigating this guy at the time, but it sounded like he should be behind things. And so I thought a bit about Martini, who'd read the Newton papers. Newton studied them and he created this device which allows you to find ley lines. In fact, I wrote a, I did a handout which talks about the device. I just kept building on this Martini guy and this Portmore guy. And I decided he'd found ley lines. He didn't really understand what they were, but he got into magic, found a magic book. Oh dear, it was the Unas Preciouslund Kulton. He read that and went mad. Not in the way that real people do. He went mad in as much as his brain was scrambled to the extent that he became devoted to a mythos deity of some kind. I think we all go through the phase in our teenage years. Yeah. The crux of the history machine is pretty fascinating, especially for any sort of game that is going to be conspiratorial or has space for the conspiratorial, which basically says, take a real world event. Who could have benefited from it? What What is a sinister spin we can put on it? What is a cynical take or a morally ambiguous take that we can put on it? What is a coincidence that seems too coincidental for our liking? Who will profit from this? And then how do we bring that into something that the players are able to engage with. Another piece of advice you have is look for links, however tenuous, between the real and the fantastic, which I think for any any game that involves kind of magic or the or the mythical, that is valid, as well as kind of an emphasis on having multiple angles of possible truth that you have kind of layers of interpretation on top of each other. And again, this doesn't need to just apply to this game, and this is part of the reason why it's kind of so fascinating to talk about it. It's, it's just kind of a, a way to keep generating bits as well as another piece of your advice, sheer madness. If it looks too good to be true and yet utterly ins- and yet it's utterly insane, use it. So I, I think we've also all been there as storytellers. You explain it so much better than I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Here to help. Yeah, the, the history machine is, is going to be a fantastic tool for anybody who's running any kind of conspiratorial setting or themed game. Kudos. Yeah, and as, Fantastic. Thank you. And as part of it, I suggest also drawing relationship maps so you can have a visual idea of how these things stack up and where the links are because they're quite easy to get a grasp on quickly. I find players draw them as well. Now you uh, say draw, draw, draw a map, but I think what you really mean is to get a, a, a board with some push pins and some red string. Well, <laughs> yes, uh, I would love that, but we play online, so it's a bit harder to do that. That's the next virtual tabletop add-in someone needs to figure out, the corkboard string conspiracy board. The greatest conspiratorial map in all of World of Darkness is still going to be Bob Schnoblin's Pyramid of Satanic Power. So anytime we can include that into a game where the Girl Scouts, the Sierra Club, and the Brotherhood of the Euthanatoy are all connected, I'm here for it, certainly. So those are kind of some of the underlying technologies. There are a bunch that are in here, and again, they go far beyond the, the four corners of just fearful symmetry. Jumping to the 30s and kind of our last cluster of sections, why the 1930s? 
liberties? And what, if any, were some of the interesting ideas that were just kind of in the air at the time that we as people almost a century later wouldn't consider? Yeah, the 1930s was a period of, I mean, essentially it was the 1930s because Cosium had done the 1920s. So we chose the 1930s because it was next and we wanted a similar kind of vibe. The 1930s is much like Blake's time as a period of upheaval. This is another period of massive upheaval in the United Kingdom because our empire was falling away. You know, the United States was now the top industrial country in the world, had been actually for 20 years by the 1930s. India was drifting away from us. Gandhi was taking it away. We still owe America $4.4 billion for World War One. In fact, we have never paid that off. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> paid our second World War debt, not our first World War debt. There was massive societal upheaval because of the depression. And in England in particular, the North, which was more industrialized than the South, the South had a lot more of the service industries. The North was far more affected in the UK. And there was a big hunger march from Jarrow to London, which is the length of England almost. And on top of this, the weirdness of spiritualism, because of everybody who died in the First World War, there are some villages, all the young men of the village died. And it's difficult to think about walking around your small town and just not seeing any man under 30 or under 45, quite possibly. There was just nobody to do the work, as it was thought of at that time. The state of women had changed recently as well, because they'd got universal suffrage in the UK in 1921. But also there are a lot of these occult groups around. So they'd been in a big occult revival in the 1890s in the UK with the Golden Dawn was the, the first big one of these really, which brought magical thinking back. It was quite closely aligned with Masonic ritual. It was also quite a lot of it was based on Egyptian stuff, which was very popular at the time as well. But then um, you had things like Madame Blavatsky uh, and her writing and theosophy, which touches quite quite a lot on Lovecraft because she talks about all these precursor races that existed before humanity. And I think Lovecraft mentions her by name in some. But then there were other societies which just got even stranger. So the Panacea Society, which is a favourite in this household. So Joanna Southcott was a, a seer and visionary who died in 1814. She lived in Devon. So actually, she was contemporary with Blake. She lived from 1750 to 1814. And she was convinced that she was going to give birth to the new Messiah, which she didn't. Which that we know of. Well, yes. She had these <laughs> this box. She'd put all her stuff in, which was kept by an enclave of her followers who all moved to the town of Bedford, which is you know about 35 miles north of London. The box was going to be opened when uh, all the bishops got together and opened it. Actually, it was opened by in 1927 by Harry Price, who was a psychic researcher in the UK, who claimed to have come possession of it and opened it with the Bishop of Grantham. And there were some unimportant papers, a horse pistol and a lottery ticket in there. <laughs> now, the South Cottians, the, the Panacea Society, said that wasn't the proper box. And they ran a campaign on billboards to try and get the bishops together to open the box. You needed 24 bishops. They claimed that war, disease, crime and banditry, distress of nations and perplexity would increase until the bishops opened Joanna Southcott's box. And they also said the world would end in 2004. Pass me right by. I was working yeah. that day. The last member of their order died in 2012, but there is still a charitable organisation that carries on the, the work, or at least has a museum dedicated to Southcott. So so they're quite an unusual and exciting group to include in your game. What do they have in that box? I just like the fact that it included a horse pistol, um, which from what I understand of British stereotypes represented 4% of all firearms in the United Kingdom. So it was pretty important to have that in the box. I mean, it's the lottery ticket that, that gets me. I mean, surely if you're going to give birth to the new Messiah, 
you got the winning numbers, right? You would hope so. I mean, yeah, somebody should have kept that ticket because it was bound to come up. So the other thing that was happening in the 30s in most of Europe was the rise of fascism. Pretty much every country in Europe had a fascist group that was more or less successful. Italy, Germany, Portugal, Spain all had fascist governments that some of them outlasted the war, in fact, Portugal until the 1970s. The rise of fascism, the relationship with Germany, and also the rise of witchcraft happened at the same time. And there was a group called the New Forest Coven, and they engaged in the magical Battle of Britain. I've heard of this. Yeah. So Hitler, or some of his mates, were quite strongly into the occult, like Hess and Himmler. A lot of occult groups got banned in Germany as the Nazi party uh, rose in power because they weren't, partly because a lot of people thought their magic was too Jewish, and partly because they were threatening the party line. The Nazis carried on with the Arna Neighbor, which was their um, archaeological group that kept investigating, looking for magic items like the Spear of Longinus or searching for for the Holy Grail in the Pyrenees for some reason. And so the New Forest Coven were set up as a counter. This is what they said later on. They set up as a counter to try and do a magical spell to prevent the Nazis from invading Britain. And they built a pyramid of power in the New Forest, which is, it's called the New Forest because it was planted in about the 13th century. It was Relatively new back then. New. Yeah, well, it was new back then. <laughs> We've got rid of most of our old forests, but the new forest was a hunting ground for the king and so remains until this day and still has wild horses in it. It's on the south coast, and this is where they built their pyramid of power, which countered the Nazis and stopped them from invading the United Kingdom. So Project Sea Lion failed because of this pyramid of power. Can't argue with the results. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. Strong work. And I suppose the other thing around the time is the work of uh, Alfred Watkin. So Alfred Watkin was a historian uh, and a man with some spare time. He wandered around the place where he lived, which was Herefordshire on the Welsh borders, and he noticed that a lot of the standing stones and the barrows that were left over from uh, Neolithic and Anglo-Saxon times were aligned. And his idea was that people had placed them on the hilltops so that you could uh, have a point to aim at because you didn't have a compass and you didn't have any maps. So how would you know which way to get home? You'd look on the hills, you'd look at the hills around you, and that one's got a standing stone. So we'll aim for that standing stone and we'll build another one on the hill beyond that. And these all line up. It was actually a German who came up with this idea slightly before Watkins, but he didn't get any, didn't get very far with it. So Watkins published a book called The Old Straight Track, which is essentially saying Neanderthals built these things on hilltops so that they could get around the country. This was co-opted by people with slightly more magical thinking, saying, well, these lines across the country, they must be lines of power in some way. And so the idea is that these lines are, in my conceit anyway, these lines are left over from some mythos past. They've been reactivated by the Call of Cthulhu, which has sent this wave across the world, and now they can provide magic to magical practitioners in England. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't ley lines or other ways of getting magic in other parts of the world, but this is what's happening in England, and this is why there's a proliferation of magical groups, because they have this power, a source that they can tap into using rituals. And in fact, ley lines turn up in so many games, really. There's a, there's a lot of different games who talk about them being a source of power, I think. I do kind of like the idea that ley lines are this example of, for lack of a better term, magical induction, that in the same way (laughs) that a coronal mass ejection can induce current in power lines, that the waking of a great old one uh, suddenly reactivates these things and suddenly Skellig Michael bursts into flames or something like that. And you're like, besides the destruction of a lot of great historical sites, having magic back is pretty cool, but uh, just a lot of monasteries that go down. Uh, Take that St. Michael's line. And I I assume you're talking about uh, Wilhelm 
Tudit. He was the... Uh, oh, yes, yes. He's actually turned out in my game as an NPC, and I couldn't remember his name. Yeah, he picked yeah. the wrong pony in the 20s, so I'm fine ignoring him. <laughs> um, <laughs> Toit. I think he's called Toit. T-U-D-T. He was a member of the Honor Neighbor as well. Yeah, which, uh, if you look up on Wikipedia, is listed as a Schutzstaffel think tank. And I'm like, oh, that's, one that way, that's one way of describing yeah. it. <laughs> they were an offshoot of the SS, yes. Yeah. So you tapped on a few of the mystical societies that are popular in the 1930s. And speaking of the history engine, there is no reason to think that these are not in some way still around. Even failed millennial or eschatological cults have a way of sticking around well past the time that their predictions have proven to be completely wrong. You mentioned the Argentum Astrum, the Church of the Universal Bond, the Fraternity of the Inner Light, the liberal Catholic Church, which is the most terrifying of all as someone who is raised as a Catholic. That L word in there is just mystifying to me. The Cult of the Morning Star, Theosophy, writ large. There is, this This is rich with options if you would like mortal magical groups or especially in a game like Mage, you're looking for something that your character is secretly in charge of or or in contact with. My last question is, is there anything else that you've worked on recently or are working on that you feel would be useful in any kind of urban fantasy game? Or is there a next project that we should keep our eyes out for? So it took me eight years to write Faithful Symmetries. And in fact, towards the end, I just handed it over to Ken Height and he did all the pictures and created the magic system. And the reason for that is I suffer from chronic fatigue. And so it became very difficult to write. So my output has massively slowed down. I did contribute some folklore stuff to a 5e game called A Folklore Bestry by the Merry Mushmen, which is a French group of publishers. It's written in English, though. So the, the conceit here was to take creatures from your culture and turn them into a fantasy game. Now, I've used these in Vason, which is the Free Elegan game of 1890s or Victorian, roughly, Sweden or England. And one of my creatures uh, is well-known to Americans. I claimed that I was allowed to do Mothman because culturally he's Scots-Irish and I'm half-Irish. So. so I stepped up the Mothman and gave all sorts of reasons why the Mothman would be in your game. I also had uh, Lupetasu, who's a French creature. He's kind of the embodiment of care. And every year he's burnt by the villagers. A bit like that Algrove in is it in California, the Algrove, where they burn the embodiment of care? Or they just turn up? That's it, yeah. I think it's in California. Somewhere. Is that yes. different than the goat that gets burned down every year accidentally? Yes. Uh, the actual okay. on-purpose Swedish goat is different, yeah. Okay, thank you. Same. I'm that's, not nearly as cultured as you are. Goat. As mentioned, I've run 266 sessions of Fearful Symmetries. There is an enormous amount of material that didn't go into the game. My players went to Switzerland and Hungary investigating the Black Stone uh, of Ari Howard fame. They've been to the Dreamlands. There's a whole load of extra stuff, which at some point I'm hoping to get some of this together in a publishable format or just, you know, stuck on C Page XX, which is the Felgrain in-house magazine. So I'd like I'd like to do more stuff. And in addition, though, the, you did write Urban Shadows Dark Streets, which is a wonderful extension of Urban Shadows, or pardon me, you participated in it, you didn't write it, per se. I think you also contributed something to Shotguns vs. Cthulhu, which is like, yes, slow insanity. What about very fast insanity? <laughs> um, which I kind of like as a, a as a contrivance. Did you also participate in Blood on the Snow for Drama System, which is the favorite I game did. system I've never played? I did. I wrote a setting called Paged, where... Uh, it's set in a scuzzy street behind the British Museum, and you are all characters who have escaped from fiction in the British Museum and live together in a flat next door to it. Hmm. Uh, my wife wrote the game in there, which is set in the world of Jilly Cooper, which is uh, posh people and horse racing. That sounds as pulse-pounding as Shotguns versus Cthulhu. Do you have a social media presence that you'd like to uh, share with us? I do, yeah. 
I'm on Mastodon. There's a slight uh, question mark in that, and that is the way that someone should reference Mastodon. I'm on Mastodon. <laughs> I'm on Twitter as GB underscore Steve, and my Mastodon is at GB Steve, no underscore, at dice.camp. And links to all those will be in the show notes. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. So Bryce and I are trying a new format where we talk to an author and rather than interject terminology about a game they have never heard of, we, we kind of save that for the back half of things. Bryce and I have both gone through Fearful Symmetry in at least some ways and kind of working our way through, what do you think of the idea of the cosmology of William Blake kind of as a paradigm within Mage? Because like to me, one of the first two things that came up is a character who believes that this fits highly into a hermetic worldview and this is just kind of another sheen on it that no one has investigated. The idea that there is a ur-being that breaks down into four elements, that they are tied to elements. In fact, there is a set of Blakeian correspondences that say how each of the Zoas is tied to a planet and so on. It just feels like a, a pretty straightforward thing and I like the idea that a character goes for the Blakeian cosmology because like the angels are busy, like Raphael and Uriel and Mikael, <laughs> like everyone's yeah, all the other hermetics are bothering them. Yeah. However, if we look over here in the corner, we can see that, uh, you know, Urizen is just sitting there twiddling his thumbs waiting for our call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other one to me is this feels very hollower in the sense really? that there is this deep romantic modern thing that comes out of somebody's slightly idiosyncratic view and that it could either be romantic or or it could be postmodern in that someone says enough people have read this. This entity is going to answer my call. It is a example of essentially egregore of enough people have read the Blake mythos that this entity exists. I always try and find a hollower angle for things because I like the postmodern view in the same way that if a character is an archetype, I automatically call them a verbena in some way, shape or form. Like to me, Neo is verbena from the matrix and people were like Durr. <laughs> i'm like yeah it's a pretty standard chosen one narrative they're simply wearing the uh the great mantle of creation in this thing and it happens to be technological but w where do you see kind of the mythos uh the blake mythos or the zoas or would have fitting into the world of mage magic if anywhere either verbena or celestial chorus right because there was the the initial one and then it blew up devolved became the rest i mean that's that's the wick. That's that's the, mm. the 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 one from the celestial chorus that we're all trying to get back to. And suddenly we have a character that is looking through the Blake mythos, kind of for clues about it. That all the other mythologies of the shattered first one are so old that we've missed all of it. And maybe you encounter a character, an NPC, who's trying to track down the original Blake notes, who thinks that they may have a read. I do like the the Wick angle, that there are, as you mentioned, the pure ones that created the Wick, that created the Eudina, that created kind of the rest of humanity. And that for whatever reason, Blake had possibly, through it being passed down through generations until he kind of spilled the beans, this information on kind of what those natures of those, those first creatures were. I prefer the just like you said it's it's just divine revelation it came to him out of the blue this isn't something that is you know he learned from his grandpappy who learned from his grandpappy on on back through the years this is he was you know sunbathing nude in his garden with his wife one day and the wick said you know what we need someone to be our, our messenger 
mm, on Earth. Okay. We've we've fallen out of favor. So the you know, and the Industrial Revolution is coming on. So we need to we need to head that off at the pass if we can. So we're gonna get that guy right there. And it does kind of fit with the Corister notion of not necessarily tying directly with an actual faith. Like the chorus goes back and forth between, is it this kind of cryptic version of Christianity? Does it embrace all faiths? Is it all practitioners of a faith that have kind of taken a step away from orthodoxy? Like we very much get the idea within a Sorcerer's Crusade that most even Christian choristers would be considered heretics in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Well, to be fair, in the Sorcerer's Crusade, Everyone south of the Pope was a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's another easy hurdle to clear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also like the idea of the artifice of this coming from a, a person's mind, it being kind of revered by maybe a group of marauders or maybe a group of practitioners of crazy wisdom that are like, yes, this is modern divine inspiration. There have been so few people that have been, as you mentioned, touched by the cosmos to reveal this information. I could also see it as an angle for infernalism. You have the fallen and twisted Zoas, you have Lawson Orc, and you have a lot of this very broody, dark magic that is kind of wrapped up around it. Do you think the question of was Blake a mage should be answered? I don't think that the question of was anyone a mage historically should be answered just generically. You know, yes, in every campaign, Rasputin, he was a mage. No, if, if, if it works for your table that he was a mage, yes. If it works for your table that he was a vampire or just a regular dude, that's what happened at your table. I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of claiming historical figures. Jim Morrison. Still, I mean, obviously, yeah, yes, yeah, he was a celestial course. That's just one <laughs> So I also like the idea that the works of Blake are either triggers for awakening, are wonders unto themselves, are essentially nodes that they generally, if you have the Great Red Dragon over the sea, or you have Ancient of Days, that is a node. It generates quintessence or tasks at a certain rate or something like that. I, I like the idea that the great works are, or important cultural works are in some way still alive. And that if you do have Ancient of Days though, you do start taking on bits of static resonance. Uh, Urizen, the agent of tyrannical order kind of starts influencing what you do and suddenly you build up a uh, a little bit of rigid resonance or that is the type of task that this object produces what do you think of like artistic works being in some way magical i like the idea of the artistic work to steal from my other favorite world of darkness game changing the dreaming a type of dross that you can draw power from maybe with the mind sphere to get, you know, to align yourself, the creative process that was used to create the art rather than prime. Hmm. Kind of the next thing that came through in our conversation was these magical groups in the 1930s. And and these to me are pretty fascinating in terms of what they were due. Some of them were end time cults. We have the Ordo Temple Orientalis Crowley fame that is running around and doing things on 
on this time. We have anthroposophy. There we go. The philosophy of freedom, the idea that there was ethical individualism and that free will is shaped by inner experiences, that the thought and creativity that come through thought left the theosophic society believed that he could directly access the uh, Akashic record. So I like the idea that there is a group of Akashiana that are just generic English guys. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're in touch with the Akasha. And everyone's like, right. Are you though? <laughs> um, you? Yeah. yeah. You, you have the, the, the fraternity of, of inner light at which claims to channel a text, the cosmic doctrines from an ascendant master, which is a theosophical term that they kind of took and changed. It had a quasi Masonic structure to it. Were there any groups that you saw that you kind of thought were particularly interesting and how would you use them in a game? I really enjoyed your, your scary monster, the liberal Catholic church that was created when the one Bishop of an offshoot of the Catholic church said, no, we're going to do something different real fast. And they just, just went off on their own, added uh, some, some theosophical ideas to Catholicism and uh, said, uh, yeah, we believe in most of that, except for papal inf- infallibility, which, as I understand, the Catholic Church is kind of an important part of it. It's relatively new, though. I didn't realize that the doctrine of papal infallibility was actually, it was voted on by a minority of cardinals, and it occurred in the 19th century. Oh, well, I guess that, that would explain why the group that, what, that became the liberal Catholic Church was originally the old Catholic Church. Today I learned. It was defined uh, you, dogmatically in the First Vatican Council. The idea of it has been around for a while, but us being like, right, put it on the big book. It's <laughs> <This laughs> part of the rules now. <laughs> yep. Sorry, the College of Bishops. It was not It was not voted on by cardinals. My mistake. Uh, but yeah, I, you could use any of the groups in this game, in your mage game. They're fantastic examples of minor groups that maybe support the uh, the Council of Nine or... Uh, sorceress groups that uh, your characters have interactions with or just groups of mortals that you know you might be looking at maybe someday steve the uh member of the fraternity of the inner light hey maybe he's gonna awaken someday and he's got some pretty interesting ideas over there and i like these being sorceress groups that like you have the path of inner light who uh, pardon me you have the the church of the inner light that has access to the path of the inner light which is just a reskinning of one of the sorceress paths i am never quite sure of how to include sorceress groups in mage i don't think i've ever successfully done it but that that's a way yeah just just minor minor magical groups that don't really fit into the traditions but maybe i don't know maybe the the traditions use them as allies or monitor them to make sure that they don't turn nefandic mm-hmm. or you know infernal or whatever do you think there should be a umbral court of the Blakean cosmology? Do you think Albion is running around in the high umbra? Do you think there is a court of the Zoas that characters can do missions for, as it were? Mm, that's an excellent question. I, I'm i more along the lines of when it comes to, to umbral courts, I'm more along the uh, lines of there is, you know, a, an umbral court. And how you, how you see it depends on your paradigm. So yeah, if you are a, a firm believer in the mighty Thor and Odin and Loki, then when you go to see 
the high umbral court. It's in a, a Viking longhouse. You know, it's it's Asgard. But your friend who's standing next to you, who is a worshiper of, or who believes in the Greek gods or the Roman gods, they're in the same place. They're standing right next to you, but they see it in completely different trappings. So yeah, if you have a, a character who is uh, who who follows the Blakeian paradigm, then yeah, absolutely. I, I think for me, I would have a spire of Blake. Um, to me, the interesting thing is generally you are using the umbral spires to get somewhere else where you have to go from the Vulgate to an elemental court, to an umbral court, to one of the epiphanies. And, and my two questions then become, what are the elemental courts that it is above and what does it lead to? And I could see it being above the elemental courts. This is taking place during the British Industrial Revolution, the court of uh, grain, steam, coal, and wool, or something like that. And th that is the elemental spire that it is above that you have to traverse. Uh, it's the <clears throat> elemental spire of Catan. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, brick. God, I hate that game. Uh, anyway. Me too. It's the least fun board game. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to do something for, for Luva or Urthona, as uh, the blacksmith to advance their agenda before you can get to an epiphany. And to me, the interesting thing about the, the epiphanies that Blake could be connected to is that kind of anxiety of science and creativity that it both could get you to the Newtonian epiphany and probably not the Einsteinian, but also the Inventium and maybe one of the Burbana seasonal realms indirectly, that it would have this weird mishmash of connections that would kind of tie to that period of, so what are we losing? And that maybe the area around um, the Blakeian Spire does have some weird cross-section of folkloric creatures kind of in the outlands outside of that spire and that could lead you to another thing that you need to find the devil of wistmont or something like that i just assume that that's a folkloric entity there's probably a half dozen of them and before you can you can take a toenail from the uh the devil of wistmont or whatever it is you need to gain the favor of the umbral court that surrounds it that it is around otherwise the bobbies will come for you or whatever british stereotype you would like to have <laughs> just i just like the idea of a paradox spirit coming up to you and going what's your stand? Um, Otherwise, that, you're in a spot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> the best part is you just have to outrun of them, outrun them because none of them have guns. So that would kind of be my fold in. The the other big thing that this gives you is it does give you the Aethers, which I don't think we've talked about on the show before. Are there realms of angels that John D kind of outlined and that Aliester Crowley liked to talk more about and whether or not you want those to be a sub realm or a zone or something else. I think it is neat to be like, Hey, this sorcerer's group that normally can't get into the Umbra seemingly has access to these atheists. What does that mean? Yeah. To the atheists and just the atheists. They can't go anywhere else because that'd be, you know, true magic. They can go hang out with, you know, Raphael or Michael or Ineon or Luva, but you know, they want to stay away from loss. But yeah, the book does have a Zoa quick reference handout. It also has a, a a list of all of the atheers and what they tie to. It's also nice because it gives us a whole bunch of interconnected realms that aren't just wildly misinterpreting the Sephiroth 
again. <laughs> so the other thing the book has is a lot of weird mythical creatures and weird mythical locations that you can just kind of pick up, move over, and put down, like the British questionable uh, relationship with dogs. Apparently, dogs in the UK are quite scary, and they're like, oh, by the way, these may be hounds of Tindalos. I'm like, that changes things! I don't understand why they're afraid of dogs. Yeah, if the only dogs that I were familiar with were the hounds of Tindalos, I would be afraid of Chihuahuas too. That that tracks, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The the other kind of neat thing this game does systematically is it kind of gives the idea that for, as you build up scale of an effect you need to have a certain number of items and elements that tie to both paradigm and what you're trying to do that you say okay this needs an extra point for each area it encompasses or the number of people or magnitude of effect for every five of those i need some sort of link and that could either be i need to sacrifice something personally i need something tied to the effect or i need something that is magically potent and at lower levels that can be something like oh i need hawthorn wood to affect this particular kind of creature at higher levels it becomes i need access to pure water that was uh, or or holly that was harvested under the full moon with a silver scythe and at even higher levels it's like unicorn blood and you're like okay this is going to change the nature <laughs> of things that I totally understand. What do, what do you think of that idea of like kind of requiring more refined focus as the effect gets more potent? I think that that works perfectly well for a lot of paradigms and surprisingly given the, the Blakeian nature of this particular book, a scientific paradigms for a general, this will work in the, the high school science lab kind of thing. Well, you know, whatever you can you can just use whatever you know bunsen burner they have right there but if you want to make you know primium you're going to need you know nuclear furnaces or whatever mm-hmm. so yeah yeah that makes perfect sense yeah i like the idea that like when you dictate that an effect requires 10 or 15 or 30 successes or something like that for each five of those successes or something like that you need an additional element that brings some sort of resonance with your paradigm with what you're trying to do and and suddenly you can have creatures that are like yeah this can only be affected by magic if you already have this this or this or something to it and it neither cuts off your tie to the sphere system as we know it, nor prevents your characters from using magic. It just makes it a little bit more story-y to be involved. Like the sheer number of times in a game of Star Trek, you have to be like, why don't we just solve this with phasers and teleporters? And you're like, ah, it's... <laughs> oh, there's a electrical interference in the atmosphere. We can't teleport. That happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it happens so much. The, yeah, the universe by volume is mostly planets with ionization shields around them. The, the other thing I kind of liked was that set of knobs for character creation and group creation, that there is that covenant. And I like the idea that it's not just the traditions and the technocracy, but there are different magical affiliations around the world, and they kind of have agreements on how things go. And that you get North America or the U.S. and Canada because it's like, yeah, we're not allowed to use magic directly to harm mortals, but we can do it indirectly, so we control the media or something like that. We kind of sort of have a bit of that i mean they've they've kind of stepped out of the uh the traditions and the technocracy or the be-all end-all in the dragons of the east book when they introduced the five elemental dragons for instance as at the time they were presented as an alternative to the technocracy not necessarily a subsidiary or a minor groups within the technocracy i know that mage 20 went back and uh, said no that didn't actually happen Not only did they go back, they went back and then they called it racist. (laughs) I understand that for the purposes of the game, they want to have a big monolithic enemy, and that's the technocracy. And 
by default, I guess, they decided that there would be a large, maybe not monolithic, but a large group of nine groups that uh, are the, the heroes. But there's no reason for that to be the same all around the world, especially since, you know, from first and second edition, one of those nine groups was all them natives, which is, you know, that's it's a bit a bit othering and a bit not great. And I like the idea that that you would kind of have this magical concert in Europe, concert of Europe, the idea that if any magical group gets too large at a regional level, kind of the other ones put aside their differences for a little bit to, to knock them back, that in North America, it's the council versus the technocracy. Um, but in Europe, it is the Society for the Preservation of, of Ancient Ways versus the People's Modernization Front. Or something like that. And in East Asia, you have an appropriate one. And you have something that at different continent levels. And they have various affiliate organizations. And I also like the idea that when your game travels, you're like, oh, no. Here, it is very smoke and mirrors. Where in this other portion of the world, no, you can take out the lightning cylinder and unleash a Dijin against someone. If you're comfortable with the paradox, no one's going to yell at you. The uh, the paradigm here is destructive magic. Yeah. <laughs> As long as it blows something up, it is coincidental. <laughs> the realm of kaboom. Um, see Bryce and mine conversation on Torg for more information on that. Um, <laughs> but I, I kind of like that, that different areas have different covenants and that your group may have a treaty of some sort with the local other ones. And with the power of entropy four or five, it could certainly have teeth to it. Or your group does not have any compact or contact generally with this other group. And when you go to visit, even though nominally they would paradigmatically, they would be your friends. They don't know you. You're, you're a trespasser. You could be here to steal their nodes or, you know, convert their, uh, their sorceress groups. So you're, you're, they're as much your enemy as the technocracy. And that kind of reminds me of the way things work in Ars Magica, that the reason mages never really got together is that there was no good magical defense against other magic. So as you mentioned, like these compacts are used to kind of rein that in. So anyone who is not bound by it, one suddenly becomes like a free agent, but is also trusted by no one. Uh, kind of any other thoughts on bits that you saw to the game that can be brought into mage? The fact that all of William Blake's publishings were basically hand created so and then his wife or he would go in and paint the uh the drawings that were that were created in there so there no two are the same but because this is his magnum opus all these works are his work of ritualized magic those differences may have been intentional to hide some deeper truth and you would have to get a plethora if not all of them together to truly grok what he was putting down on paper you would have to see the whole picture as it were not just the parts and now here we are a hundred two hundred and something years later a lot of those are gone you just, you cannot get them. So it is literally lost knowledge. But this is mage. So, I mean, it, it still exists somewhere. It just might be a tremendous pain in the magical butt to go track down throughout the various umbrae and time locations, all of this information to, to get your deeper truth. 
And Blake was also tied in with, again, religious observations. So like the phrase ancient of days has been used as a name of God since the book of Daniel and probably before. So I like the idea that Blake is just the newest incarnation of those those figures, whether or not you want to pull it from Loriana Kabbalah or from like the Ubusi Fresco in Georgia, like that title and mantle have existed. So I like the idea that a character has either an avatar in in the face of it or an umbral patron that there is this entity or being that has worn this mantle that is looking to pass it on and yeah the the subtle variations between the two like oh to pull this off we need seven copies of uh swole newton at the bottom of the sea um again i need to i need to use that as the, <laughs> as the show art because it's just an absolutely ripped isaac newton you don't know that's not what isaac newton looked like correct you know i i've never I, it's not how I picture Isaac Newton, but hey, who, who am I to say? But I, I, I think there is something rich and interesting here. And uh, listeners, if this episode format worked for you, tell us and we'll do it again. If it didn't, we won't. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward in that regard. Anything else come onto your radar recently? Is anything particularly inspiring for Mage? about this podcast a secret history of western esotericism i gotta <laughs> gotta subscribe to that but no if you that's, that's about it if you can make more headway at it than i could best to you it was one of those podcasts where i drifted off by like four minutes and by the time i came back i'm like okay i'm already lost this is going to require far more brain cells <laughs> than i can muster bryce thanks for joining terry as always thanks for having me this has been Mage the Podcast, where if someone claimed to be Primordial Albion, we'd be really suspicious, but you know what, man? You do you. This episode was made possible by Oracle Sean Gallagher, who represents Albion's desire for a good lamb curry, Oracle Benjamin Bentlow, who represents Albion's desire for very warm socks, Oracle Buck Gregory, who represents Albion's desire for an efficient tea kettle, Oracle Christopher Phillips, who represents Albion's desire for a better performance base layer when they go out rambling, Oracle Joshua Hillerup, who represents Albion's desire to subdue the wilds of Canada, Oracle Pukuji, who represents Albion's desire to front a really good glam rock band, Oracle Neil Patterson, who represents Albion's desire for vinyl to be not such a thing anymore. Oracle J. Widener, who represents Albion's desire for a nice Burberry coat. Oracle McHale, who represents Albion's desire for hurling to be a big sport again. And finally, Oracle the Crew of Erebus, who represents Albion's desire. That's it, just Albion's desire. I'd also like to thank Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dance Vincent, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Guy Conan Stewart, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aran, Archmaster Patrick McNamara, as well as Alex, Alexia, Anders S, Anand, Bedurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Sin Shaddis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, David Roy, Derek Osborne, Eli Levenger, Fragger Rock, George Laura, Ia Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Jolene Andes, Lawson and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Schnabelteo Krieger, Stefan Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Our EP shout-out this week is to Ryan Stray, and this is a bit of fiction I wrote if every sphere were like mine and had a shield effect as part of its level 1 abilities. Life 1 allows only the elemental introduction to the vast and complicated sphere, so I, uh, so I guess I can only detect life. No, that would be lame. We can catch bullets. Catch bullets? Yes, by creating a life shield, you can protect yourself from other life. But uh, catching stray bullets doesn't feel lifey. To study life, one must live, and bullets impede this. Okay, so one exception. Got it. 
also thrown cars. What? Yes, the basic understanding that you can increase your strength, stamina, and resiliency. That seems kind of crazy. How? Again, not being effed up when a building drops on you is vital to studying life. This is wisdom from our ancestors. Did they have a lot of buildings dropped on them? No, but their wisdom was so great that they foresaw this. Thank you for your support. Rather listen on YouTube? Search Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. Mage the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at magethepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to magethepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye. Do you listen to the Schwepp? The secret history of Western esoterism. I try to. Um, If I try and listen to it and do anything more complicated than walk slowly, I break (laughs) out in sweats. I even emailed the host one time. They're like, this is our game, but this is what we talk about. And I got a four page response that I have been too terrified to go through. I also now want to do a weird Japanese manga Gundam version of this where Albion is literally like a mecha that has to be assembled from the uh, the bots that are the four Zoas. I think that's really untapped potential, and that's where we're really going to make bank oh, on shit. this idea. And every day we celebrate that by having intercourse with a cod. That's genius. Okay, added, <laughs> added to the show notes. Boom. Where are you based? I'm in Philadelphia. Okay. So, um, the, one of the oldest cities in America, which is to say roughly the age of the average, um, rain pail in the, uh, in the, in the UK. I've been to Philly. I've yep. had a Philly cheesesteak. <laughs> that's the experience. Did, You're yep. done. I did what tourists do. That's everything. That's all you need.